Hello, I'm Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. Climate change is of concern to so many of us, not only for ourselves, but for our children in the future. Last year, 16 children who reside in Montana challenged the state, arguing that its fossil fuel emissions violate the Montana state constitution. And last month, in Held versus Montana, a federal district judge ruled in their favor. Today, I speak with Professor Paul Rink, my newest colleague here at Halb Law, who joins us fresh from his position at our Children's Trust, one of the law firms that worked on the case. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Tell me a little bit about the case. Sure. So in fact, those who are familiar with this particular case may have seen a lot of news about it related to what a monumental decision it was. And there have also been some articles that have caveated that momentousness Mm -hmm. by saying that it's very narrow in terms of what the decision was and what it applies to. And I feel like that can be sort of hard to hold in your head. Right. <laughs> why is <Yeah>. it narrow? <laughs> and why is it really monumentous? And so I was going to ho- start by talking about why there might be that discrepancy and why I think that actually it is a very momentous decision that is likely to have a large impact, despite the fact that the ruling itself was fairly narrow. So I want to hear that, but I want to just take us one step back. Sure. What is it about the Montana Constitution that allowed these kids to sue? What are they saying they have a right to? Right. So unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Montana Constitution explicitly has a provision that every Montanan has a right to a clean and healthful environment. Wow. So, yeah, which is not, it's rare, although not completely uncommon Mm -hmm. within state constitutions. There are other state constitutions that have a similar provision. Mm -hmm. And as such, unlike in cases that you can think of where, for example, Obergefell versus Hodges, the right to have a gay union or a gay Mm -hmm. marriage Mm -hmm. was seen as being a part of the Constitution through the unenumerated right yeah. of the right to privacy. Specifically in Montana, you have the enumerated right to a clean and healthful environment. So that provides a really strong legal basis for the kinds of claims these youth were bringing. Okay, interesting. All right, so then take it from there. <laughs> yeah, sure. So when the case was originally filed with these 16 youth plaintiffs, the asks of the court were pretty expansive, ranging from declaratory relief in the sense that The court can state that the Constitution has been violated by state policy, but also injunctive relief to make sure that the state is no longer violating these use rights by changing its energy policy to no longer facilitate fossil fuels. But at the motion to dismiss phase of the trial, all of the injunctive relief claims were dismissed, and so it was narrowed in that sense. Okay. But then also at the summary judgment phase of the trial, after Mm -hmm. all of the evidence had been gathered, Mm -hmm. the court further narrowed the claims from asking the court to make a declaratory judgment around the State Energy Act, the constitutionality of it, and several other aspects, specifically down to one of the claims that the plaintiffs brought. All right. So I am not, and and my listeners know, I'm not an environmentalist. (laughs) I find, you know, I, I learn as I speak to you. But when they brought their claims, as you're speaking, I'm realizing they're bringing them against the state of Montana for violating the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. But who's creating the fossil fuels that are violating the Constitution? Do do you understand what I'm asking? Absolutely, yeah. And that's a perfect segue into the specific provision that was actually allowed to go to trial. Uh Because the government itself wasn't being accused of eliciting the fossil fuels themselves through its actions. in the sense that it wasn't necessarily producing them itself. Uh-huh. But the affirmative acts of the government did allow for the fossil fuels to be produced, and that's what the youth were claiming. Essentially, they were permitting the 
development of fossil fuel infrastructure, drilling activities on Montana land. And that was leading to the dispersal of fossil fuels and therefore greenhouse gas emissions that uh-huh. were causing them harm. So did they think about, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but did they think about suing the companies that were mining the fossil fuels? Or did they think that it would be more in their favor to sue Montana? Or did they try to sue both? Well, that's a great question. And there are cases around the United States and the world suing specifically fossil fuel companies and other companies that engage in fossil fuel extraction and production and use. But the cases that are brought by our Children's Trust, where I used to work and that developed this case, as well as other cases around the country and the world, really the theory of change stems from government action. Because the government not only has the power to prohibit this kind of extraction through the canceling of permits or the refusal to give permits, but it also has that specific responsibility toward its citizens not to abuse them by allowing the environment to be degraded in a way that affects their constitutional rights. Whereas fossil fuel companies don't have that same right and obligation relationship. So the kind of case you could file against a fossil fuel company would probably be more along the lines of a contractual obligation or a tort obligation. Mm -hmm. And the area of law for those kinds of cases has been a little bit more tricky to bring claims in courts around the United States. There are actually a lot of cases that have tried this that have been mostly rejected, Mm -hmm. including a famous case called Kivalina, where uh, a number of native Alaskans tried to sue fossil fuel companies and were kept out of court. Well, it's interesting because this seems to me like the novel case, right? Suing the constitution, I mean, suing the state and their constitution. So, all right, so now what happened? How did was held decided? What did the court say? And this is a, this is a district court that ruled on this. Yes, yeah. it was the district court, mm-hmm. and it will be appealed to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, so it's still pending that final decision, but this was definitely the step in the right direction. Right. And basically, the narrow issue that was presented at trial was a provision in MEPA, the instructions for how to interpret MEPA, the Montana Environmental Protection Act, that specifically said that environmental reviews of policy and agency action, Mm -hmm. you can't consider greenhouse gas emissions and impacts on climate change when conducting that environmental review. And that specific provision is what the judge in this case, Judge Seeley, determined to be unconstitutional. Because basically, in her findings of law, she determined that the plaintiffs had proven that they had been injured by climate impacts that were caused by fossil fuel emissions that were in part mm-hmm. the result of decisions by the Montana government. How, like, were they injured? They had to show the asthma records mm-hmm. or that kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. It, well, that's a, in this particular case, there were a lot of different pieces of evidence produced mm-hmm. by the plaintiffs. In fact, the findings of fact took up about 75 pages of wow. the decision. Yeah, I saw the decision was 103 pages. <laughs> it's 103 pages, yeah. and there's only about 25 pages that are actually decisions on matters of law. Wow. The other 75 pages are distilling the scientific and other types of evidence that were produced to really put that in the court record. Oh, great. And there was a substantial coverage of the impacts that were produced on the plaintiffs, including mental and physical impacts from being exposed to wildfires, asthma attacks, seeing places that they've loved in their history being destroyed, having less access to outdoor activities, not being able to do things because um, they, they loved in their past, those kinds of things, all different types of impacts. You know, it's interesting because I really... When I think about climate change and the fear of climate change, I think about the future. Mm-hmm. But this case really is evidence of the present. Mm-hmm. And that's really important 
Absolutely. I just have to make that observation. <laughs> yeah, in fact, that's been something that we do in all of our cases. Our, our children's trust is really focused on the present day impacts to mm -hmm. young people. But that often incorporates concerns about the future. Right. Because we, there was really prominent child psychologists who presented testimony in court to the fact that many young people are experiencing extreme feelings of distress, anxiety, concern, and a dysphoria about the future that's being held for them when they're seeing the world around them start to crumble because of often present-day impacts to their physical health, their mental health, and other aspects of their lives. Wow. All so, right, so, so let's get back to the case. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So once they'd proven, uh, once the judge had determined that they had proven injury, the next consideration was causation. Mm -hmm. And the judge also determined that there was a fairly traceable connection between this particular limitation on the Montana Environmental Protection Act to not consider climate impacts when doing state policy and state greenhouse gas emissions that then resulted, which then led to the climate impacts that which then harmed the young people. Mm -hmm. So although that might seem like an attenuated line of causation, mm -hmm. the judge determined based on all of the evidence presented at trial that it was one that held up in court. Wow. And that finally gets us to the question of redressability, which is what I think is the big takeaway from this case, because it's been an aspect that's held up similar cases in other jurisdictions in U.S. courts. And so, for example, in the other case that our children's trust brought at the federal level called Juliana versus the United States. So in Juliana versus the United States, the Ninth Circuit determined that those plaintiffs had also demonstrated the injury that had occurred to them, mm -hmm. as well as causation. But they dis the court dismissed the case specifically on the question of redressability, saying that the judiciary is not equipped mm -hmm. to provide the relief that they're seeking. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, the judge determined the opposite, specifically around the request for declaratory judgment, mm -hmm. because having a declaration of what the law is, is the most fundamental aspect of what a court can do. Mm -hmm. And in this case... The court determined that the state of Montana must either have discretion to deny the permits based on unconstitutional environmental impacts, or the permitting statutes are essentially unconstitutional. Because if there is no discretion, then they're basically not able to make a decision mm -hmm. around whether it's going to be impacting the environment in a negative way, which is required by the Constitution. Yeah. And so... Basically, the court determined that the MEPA limitation categorically limits what agencies can consider when denying permits. And therefore, by enacting and enforcing the MEPA limitation, the state is failing to meet the plaintiff's right to a clean and healthy environment in the Constitution. And the reason that's so important and impactful is because of this redressability consideration, mm -hmm. where in other cases that it's been decided that the court doesn't have the ability to make these kinds of determinations, seeing this as precedent will really have an impact across the United States in terms of what it can help judges to realize they're able to do with their power in their courtroom. So play it out in a hypothetical. Like, give me a hypothetical that of, of a real-world practicality of how this case would limit fossil fuel emissions. Well, in that specific instance, for the state of Montana, mm -hmm. this has a much greater direct impact in the sense that, obviously, it's held up in terms of how it'll be implemented until the Supreme Court makes its decision well, yeah. on appeal. Yeah. But assuming that the Supreme Court upholds the decision, the state of Montana is going to have to take into consideration how climate ch change impacts harm right. lo local Montanans whenever they conduct any decisions around state policy related to the energy sector. And so it'll be possible for future plaintiffs to come to court and say, Montana just licensed this particular drilling operation, and they didn't adequately take into account how it's going to impact 
my life, my mental health, my physical health, etc., by the outcomes of climate impacts that are going to occur. And of course, it's specific to youth plaintiffs in this case, but it opens the door for anyone who can express exactly how climate change is impacting their lives to bring similar claims in the future. Wow. So I have an observation and a question. My observation is, starting maybe in the 70s, maybe earlier, we had to take into account the environmental impact on animals, right? Mm -hmm. So like there's a famous case in the Hudson River where they couldn't do what they wanted because the fish were going to get hurt. Yeah. And so it's interesting that we we worried about the animals and my, you know, colleague David Casuto worries about the animals constantly yeah. and not the individual to the <laughs> and that's exclusive of individuals. Right? <laughs> but now we're kind of giving these individuals, it seems to me, the same kind of status. You have to consider not their property, but their well-being, mm-hmm. right? When they do this. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. In relation to the fish example, I uh-huh. think it was endangered species yeah. in the Hudson River. Yeah, the endangered species, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in this case, I, I see your point that it seems like you're applying the same framework to young people. Right. And it seems kind of crazy that it would take so long to put it onto young people. But I think in this case, one of the reasons climate cases have struggled in the courts is because sometimes it's hard to really c- concretely describe the impacts that happen to young people. And so, although with a fish circumstance, you could see directly how they were being impacted in whatever way. I don't know the details of the yes. case. With young plaintiffs, there need, need to be a trial in which they presented the evidence and really proved that there was this impact to them. Right. And in most cases that have been filed like this in the United States, none of them have gone to trial. They've been dismissed in the pretrial motion phase. And so this is really the first trial of its kind in the United States ever. So this is really exciting. So my question, really exciting. And then my question relates to the children. So in a lawsuit, you always seek damages, right? So there's two types of damages here. There's the seeking an injunction to get people to stop drilling or doing what they're doing with the fossil fuels. And then there's the compensation for the harm, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you put, you know, a dollar figure on anxiety or, or you know, these, you know, these, these kind of unfortunate consequences. But these children were seeking not damages, rather injunctions, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. None of the plaintiffs actually sought, sought any monetary damages in the mm-hmm. case. They were seeking specifically, originally, injunctive relief and declaratory relief. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, the injunctive relief was dismissed, but the declaratory relief was taken to trial. And that's the basically the sole remedy that they sought, and mm-hmm. they were able to achieve it, but they didn't seek any monetary damages in this case. So interesting. Um how did it feel for you to see this decision ruling in your favor? <laughs> it was really incredible. I worked at our Children's Trust for almost three years. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, we were building some of these cases. There's actually additional state cases occurring in places like Virginia and Hawaii. Right. And so seeing one actually go to trial and have this favorable outcome is something that has been many, many years in the making and is exciting on so many different levels. Yeah. Not least of which is these young people are finally getting their voices heard in court. Mm -hmm. And we work with many young people in many different jurisdictions. And it can be rather sad to see them put so much effort into these cases and then often have their cases dismissed before they're able to go and present the evidence that they are being harmed by their governments. And so in this case, it was just really fulfilling to finally have that opportunity. 
And do you think, you know, we're in New York, we don't have a provision uh, in the Constitution that grants people the right to a healthy... Actually, state. we do. I think oh. you do. Yeah, oh, anyway. We do? I, I think so. Oh, good. I'd have to so, double check that, okay. but you're one of the few states, I believe, that does. Okay. It's your state too now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what if a state doesn't have that provision? So that's a great question, in fact, and this is a question that we go into in depth in the Juliana versus United States case mm -hmm. because it's been filed federally and the U.S. Constitution does not contain such a provision. Right. But the arguments that we make in cases like that would be that basically under the due process clause, the ability to have a clean and healthful environment is implicitly included because without having a clean and healthful environment and a stable climate system, mm -hmm. you can't exercise rights that are guaranteed you in mm -hmm. the Constitution. And so not being able to live your life in a healthy way precludes you from the rights that you can think of in a more general sense, like your right to life and liberty that are guaranteed. You know, this is exciting and optimistic at a time when there isn't a lot of optimism <laughs> about the climate. Any last thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Well, so thanks for that question. I was going to say, I know you reasonably feel like it's a less optimistic time right now around climate change, but in many ways, it's a more optimistic time than in many years, because we have some of these decisions coming out in the United States and on other courts around the world. But in addition, we are starting to see the tide shift in the way that politicians talk about these things and the way that policies are really coming about. And I think there's a lot of exciting legislation that's been passed in the last few years around climate change. It's certainly not enough to fully address the problem, but it is a step in the right direction that is encouraging to see after many, many years of climate denialism and lack of progress in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think I tend to be ca cautiously optimistic around the progress we're making right now with the caveat that much, much more needs to be done. And we still need to be firing on all cylinders in both our advocacy and activism and all of the work that we do to try to bring about a stable climate for future generations. It's great. And and a lot of our listeners here um, are hopefully going to use their law degree, right, uh, to help <laughs> us bring take it a step further. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, Send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout. <laughs>